The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. Well, it's been a while since uh, I preached on Job. Uh, took a, a bit of a hiatus there, so uh, just do a really brief review here. But there's this man named Job who uh, we're told over and over again is righteous, and he's very wealthy. He's got ten kids and a whole uh, life to enjoy and celebrate a blessing. But then one day, God is approached by this Satan figure who, uh, if you literally translate the word Satan or the Satan, it is a challenger or an accuser. And he basically confronts God with what he thinks is a suspect system of rewards and punishment. What is we've been laying out as the principle of retribution. Principle of retribution. The righteous are blessed and prosper, while the wicked are cursed and suffer. And what the Satan argues is that under this flawed system, why wouldn't a guy like Job live righteously and follow you faithfully, God? After all, look at how richly he gets rewarded for the faithfulness. But he challenges God, take away those rewards. And certainly, Job will curse you to your face. And God surprisingly accepts the challenge and allows everything just about to be taken from this poor man, Job. And at the start of his suffering, Job's faith seems unshakable. Chapter 1, verse 21, Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There is no curses here. There's only blessings. But as the story goes on, under that unrelenting pain, it becomes so unbearable for Job that his faith begins to waver. And when Job finally unleashes what's been brewing in his heart, what comes forth is not actually curses against God, but shockingly curses against the day that he was born. Things had gotten so bad in his life that he now wishes his own death. And in fact, he wishes that he could undo the very day of his existence when he came into this world. In other words, in Job's calculation, if this is how my life was going to turn out, then he comes to this dark conclusion that it would have been better for me to not have been born at all. Non-existence would have been preferable to existence in this state that I'm living in. And as I pointed out in the previous messages, in chapter 3, we have these uh, two statements. God is good and life is good. And I think for most of us, these statements are inseparable. We don't know, in other words, what it means to say God is good if life is not good. They are inextricably tied together. And so the question is, what happens when life isn't good? 
Do we still believe that God is good? Job's three friends arrive to comfort him. And even from a distance, they're so shocked at the sight of him. In other words, Job is so transfigured, so disfigured by his suffering that he is unrecognizable even by them. And so for an entire week, they cannot even bring themselves to say anything to him. But they sit in the dirt with him for a week in silence and weeping. And if only they could have kept their mouth shut, it would have been a better story. Or maybe not, I don't know. But finally in chapter 4, his friends begin to talk. And their so-called wisdom begins to come out. And it all goes downhill from there. Because for the next 24 chapters, they are going to launch a verbal assault on Job. Each of them taking their turn to impart their wisdom to him, which is only going to cause Job more pain to compound his suffering. And we can basically divide this dialogue between Job and his friends into three cycles that go up to chapter 28. And I am going to basically preach three messages. So some of you are like, we're never going to get through this book. But think about it. Today I'm covering like over 10 chapters, okay? So we'll get through it. (laughs) I don't know if by the end of the year, but we'll get through it. Um, Eliphaz is the first of the friends to speak up. And he says in chapter 4, verse 7 to 8, Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. There it is again, the principle of retribution. The righteous prosper and the wicked are destroyed. And this way of thinking is so universal, isn't it? To all of us. It's not just confined to Christianity. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. It's karma, right? There's this interesting story in the book of Acts when Paul is in prison and he's taken on this Roman vessel and it becomes shipwrecked on this island of Malta. And in Acts chapter 28, verse 1 through 4, it says, Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us many unusual kindness, us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. For though he escaped from the sea, the goddess justice has not allowed him to live. In their logic, snake bite equals murderer. This is the principle of retribution. And I think the truth is, Almost all of us find it hard to escape the logic of retribution. I remember once reading the painful confession of a pastor who went down a deep, dark hole of sexual addiction, started sleeping with prostitutes. And what he said was this. He said, I would go through really extended seasons of guilt and shame. But then this is what he said. This was his logic. 
But if God was so displeased with me, why would he be blessing my ministry so much? And every time after he preached, someone would come and say, oh, pastor, I was so blessed by that sermon. It gave him the defense to say, could God be that angry with me if he's still using me and my messages? That's the principle of retribution used to an astoundingly horrible cause of justifying his sexual sin. The righteous prosper and the wicked are destroyed. As I shared a couple of messages back, I shared this diagram of the triangle. It's actually was, it's not my creation, this uh, actually uh, Jewish scholar, Savat, actually created it in his study of Job. And each of the points of this triangle represents a truth that hangs in the balance in the story of Job. And the first one on the top is the principle of retribution. But the second truth concerns God's character itself. Is God good and just? And then the third corner there, the third truth, is Job's righteousness. Job is a righteous man. And what ties all three of these truths together is the reality of Job's suffering. And in the face of Job's suffering, one of these three truths cannot be true. One of them must be false. And here's the thing. As far as Job's friends are concerned, the weakest link in this chain is Job's righteousness, isn't it? That's the easiest target. And so that's where they direct their attention. Because by all accounts, to anyone's eyes, Job looks like a righteous man. He does. As far as we can tell, this guy is good. But his suffering, his suffering must indicate that this is a lie. That there is actually some unconfessed sin in his life that is resulting in this pain. And so Eliphaz continues in verses 17 to 18. Uh, 19 of chapter 4. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth? In other words, not even the angels in heaven can withstand the harsh judgment of God, Job. Then how dare you declare your innocence in the face of your suffering? Eliphaz then urges Job in chapter 5, verse 8, but if I were you, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. Now that word appeal is important because it's most often used to refer to somebody who goes to like a spiritist or to, to get an oracle or some kind of answer from a god or some other spirit. And so what this Eliphaz friend of his seems to be encouraging Job is to say is to say, go to God and ask him to reveal what sin lies buried in your heart because clearly you don't acknowledge it. You are blind to it, but go to God and let him show you the error of your ways. And then once you know your sin, then you can start the path of restoration as he goes on. 
And he says in verses 17 to 18, blessed is the one whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. So go to God. And if you don't know what you did to deserve this, ask God, and he will tell you. And then you can repent and begin the journey of restoration. Well, how does Job respond to this line of questioning and this logic? Well, first, he continues to affirm that he has a death wish. In Job chapter 6, verse 89, it says, Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to let loose his hand and cut off my life. So he starts and says, you know what? My first and foremost request was just that he would just kill me and end my life and take me out of this misery. But then Job launches an attack on Eliphaz, once again swearing his innocence. In chapter 6, verse 24 to 30, teach me and I will be quiet. Show me where I have been wrong. How painful are honest words, but what do your arguments prove? Do you mean to correct what I say and treat my desperate words as wind? You would even cast lots for the fatherless and barter away your friend. But now be so kind as to look at me. Would I lie to your face? Relent, do not be unjust. Reconsider for my integrity is at stake. Is there any wickedness on my lips? Can my mouth not discern malice? What Job is saying is he's saying, look at me, Eliphaz. And retract your accusations while you can because I know I am innocent and my integrity is at stake here. And you are accusing me of something that I am not guilty of. I have not done this thing that you say I have done. But then Job directs his words to God himself. And this is what he says to God in chapter 7, verse 12 to 20. Am I the sea? Or the sea monster that you set a guard over me? If I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me by visions so that my soul would choose suffocation, death rather than my pains. I waste away. I will not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are but a breath. What is man that you magnify him and that you are concerned about him, that you examine him every morning and try him every moment? Will you never turn your gaze away from me, nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? You know, at the beginning of the story, we saw this practice of Job, even before his suffering began, to burn offerings every time that his children have, would have a party. And his logic was, just in case during the course of that party, they, they might have even inadvertently cursed God. What does that practice of Job's tell us about his view of God, even before his suffering? I think it tells us that he has this picture of a God who is always watching him with an eagle eye for him to do something wrong. And now in his suffering, he has found newfound courage to express with brutal honesty the darkest thoughts that haunt him about God. 
Why are you constantly watching over me, God? As if I am some kind of sea monster that has to be guarded 24-7. Don't you have better things to do with your time? Why can't you just leave me alone and give me some peace? Why are you so obsessed with every little thing that I do? All you do is sit there with your arms folded and stare at me and judge me every move I make. You know, it's interesting because in most other places in the Bible, when it references the eyes of God on his people, it is almost always in the context of comfort, of security that God watches over me. But that is not Job's sentiment. He says, I wish God would not be staring at me all the time. Can't you just leave me alone and give me some peace? Bildad chimes in, piling the accusations against Job, once again pointing to the principle of retribution in chapter 8, verse 1 to 4, and verse 20. Then Bildad the Shuhite replied, How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God prefer justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Oh, man, talk about cruel, right? Surely God does not reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hand of evildoers. Your kids got what they deserved because they must have been sinful. And now you're getting what you deserve, Job. And so just fess up and admit it. Bildad tells him that by holding on to his innocence like this, he is basically throwing God under the bus and perverting God's justice. In response to this, Job unleashes really an accusation at God that is breathtaking. In chapter 9, verse 13 to 22, God, once again, Job directs his words at God himself. God does not restrain his anger. Even the cohorts of Rahab cowered at his feet. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could, not, I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me catch my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. If it is a matter of strength, he is mighty. And if it is a matter of justice, who can challenge him? Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, it would pronounce me guilty. Although I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It is all the same. That is why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. You see, Job maintains his innocence throughout. But now he doubts whether his innocence even matters at all in this. Especially in the light of a picture of a God that is just raging in his anger at him. And he's saying, even if God were to finally hear my cries, he doesn't believe God would allow him to plead his case to him. Instead, he describes God like a bully who would only crush him only twist his words to turn even his innocence into guilt. It's interesting, but in Genesis, when Abraham pleads for God to spare the wicked city of Sodom, 
He says this to God in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? That's the faith of Abraham. God does not let the righteous perish with the wicked. But at the end of Job's complaint, he says the unthinkable. And he says, that's not my conclusion of God. My conclusion of God is he doesn't care if you're righteous or wicked. He destroys everyone. Remember the triangle? Job tenaciously holds on to his righteousness. And as far as we can tell, he never questions the principle of retribution. And so for Job, all that's left for him is God's character itself. Is God good? Is he just? Job is beginning to question the character of God. And so what's interesting is that several times in the book of Job, Job searches for a mediator, a mediator. Job chapter 9, verse 35, 33 to 35 says this, if only there were someone to mediate between us, between God and I, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more, then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. Why is Job so desperate for a mediator? Because he is losing faith in God's justice, that God even cares about his innocence. And so he says, if I could have somebody act on my behalf, then maybe I could get a fair trial here and God would hear me out. And then we get to the last passage that we're going to look at, and it's the last one that I want to reference here in Job for this message. And it comes in chapter 10 when Job will make this audacious claim to say, I know what's going on in God's heart in all of this. Chapter 10, verse 13 to 20, it says this, but this is what you conceal. This is Job talking to God. But this is what you concealed in your heart, and I know that this was in your mind. If I sinned, you would be watching me and would not let my offense go unpunished. If I am guilty, woe to me. Even if I am innocent, I cannot lift my head, for I am full of shame and drowned in my affliction. If I hold my head high, you stalk me like a lion and again display your awesome power against me. You bring new witnesses against me and increase your anger toward me. Your forces come against me wave upon wave. Why then did you bring me out of the womb? I wish I had died before any eye saw me. If only I had never come into being or had been carried straight from the womb to the grave. Are not my few days almost over? Turn away from me so I can have a moment's joy. Wow. <laughs> Job is saying, everything that I'm going through right now is because of this cruel and petty God 
that for some reason has turned his sights on me and is taking glee in my destruction. You delight in watching my every move and pouncing on me the second I mess up. And even if I don't mess up, in my innocence, you treat me like a criminal and you relish punishing me. In, others, in essence, Job is saying the game is rigged. The game is rigged and there's no way for me to win. And then he says something astounding. He says, God, you are the killer of my joy. <laughs> he says, you're a divine killjoy. So can you just leave me alone so that before I die, I could just have a moment of joy in my life? Wow. <laughs> you may be thinking, hold on a minute here. I thought Job was a good guy in this story, you know? I thought his friends were bad. But isn't Job actually one of the good guys? Isn't he supposed to be actually a positive example for us in the Bible of someone who knows how to be faithful in the face of suffering? Isn't that the way you heard the story of Job? We should all be like Job? John Walton writes in his commentary, we are used to reading the book of Job to find encouragement from Job's exemplary response to suffering. We consider his patience, long-suffering, faithfulness, righteousness, and integrity all to make him an admirable character. In our desire to preserve this pristine role model, we are perhaps sometimes too eager to eliminate or neglect anything that might promise his, compromise his stellar performance. This approach reads against the grain of the book's rhetorical strategy. The book is not trying to prove that Job's response to his situation is irreproachable. He is not held up as a paragon of virtue, showing us how we ought to respond in suffering, though some of his responses are certainly admirable. The book is teaching us about God and his policies, not offering Job as a biblical paradigm for how to approach suffering. We will uncover the authoritative teaching of Scripture by unfolding its rhetorical strategy, not by imitating its characters. To say this another way, we will learn more about surviving crises by understanding God than by imitating Job. Therefore, we ought to be more discerning and allow Job his weaknesses, a flawed theology, and a deficient view of God. Such allowance is essential because we often share these shortcomings. And I want to ask you that as I begin to wrap up this message. What does the story of Job reveal about your own deficient views of God? Can Job's honesty help us to be honest about our deepest, darkest fears about God? Because I have done enough pastoral counseling over my years to know that there are so many Christians that struggle with this view of God. That God is a petty bully who's always watching me to catch me when I mess up. And everything bad that happens in my life or everything that I want good that doesn't happen in my life is a consequence of somewhere in the past where I messed up. And we need to speak against that view of God profoundly 
to say that is not how God describes himself. Psalm 78, 35 to 39 says, they remembered that God was their rock, that God most high was their redeemer, but then they would flatter him with their mouths, lying to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not loyal to him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he was merciful. He forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. Time after time, he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a passing breeze that does not return. God's eyes are always on us, but his eyes are on us with mercy and understanding that we are weak human beings. I think there's something else about this raw honesty of Job that we have to confront in our own lives because Job puts together this airtight logic that I know in my heart I have done nothing wrong before this God, and yet I am being punished as the guilty. And so in that logic, Job's only conclusion is that God is in the wrong here, that God is a bully, that God doesn't care about him, that God doesn't care about innocence. And I wonder for how many of us we are trapped in that same bondage of our logic that says, I cannot believe in a God who would, and then you fill in the blank, who would make a world such as this, who would allow suffering like this. I cannot believe that there is a God, X, Y, Z. Let me share with you a story as I close. Um, I was in Seattle and Portland recently. And uh, I went to the airport to catch our flight back to Chicago, and I was with Betty. And we went to the rental car return area at the airport and returned the car, got to the terminal. And as I got to the terminal, I was trying to pull up my boarding pass on my phone, and I realized I didn't have my phone with me. And I was frantic. And I said, and then I, uh, my always, because I lose my phone all the time, my first instinct was go to my watch. You know that little button that can signal your phone? So I hid it because I thought it has to be somewhere here in our luggage. Nothing. The phone didn't ping. Kept hitting it over and over again. Went through all my luggage, went through my backpack, nothing. I said, I think I left it in the car. So I bolted back to the car rental return area. I ran. And just as I got there, the car we had rented was pulling out. And the guy was returning it to get a car washed and, you know, rotated for the next renter. So I frantically waved him down and flagged him down and said, I think I left my phone in the car. And so this guy comes out there and he's wearing this safety vest, this, you know, neon fluorescent safety vest. And here's the thing. Right away to me, the guy looks guilty, okay? First of all, I want to say this. My car was not, there were a ton of cars there, and it didn't make sense to me why my car was the one being pulled out at that moment. It didn't seem like it was the one that was next in line. And the second that the guy comes out of the car and he backs away real quickly, he goes, hey, man, he goes like this. He goes, go search in it. Go take a look at it, man. I didn't see a phone in there. And so I'm looking and I'm looking, and I cannot find it. And one of the managers sees what's going on, and he comes over very curious. He goes, what's going on? He goes, I think I'm almost positive I left my phone in the car, but it's not here. 
So he's kind of staring and trying to figure the situation out. And he gives me his phone. And the guy has a flip phone. He doesn't even have a smartphone. But he's, <laughs> he says, just call your phone then, and maybe it'll ring. Maybe it fell under a seat or something. So I call my cell phone. And here's the weird thing. It didn't even ring. It went straight to voicemail. And I thought, somebody turned off my phone. Because <laughs> it's not even ringing. And so I tried to call like five, six times frantically. Same thing, voicemail. Every time, not a, not a ring. And then I'm staring at this guy who's driving the car. And he's got a bulge in his pocket. And he's got a bulge in his vest. And my phone is very bulky because it's got a wallet attached to it and everything. And I'm just staring at it. And the guy just looks really uncomfortable. He's like pacing like this. And everything in me wanted to confront this guy. And I wanted to do pat down on it. <laughs> I know I could not do that. And I wanted to tell the manager and say, I think this guy stole my phone. In fact, I'm convinced he stole my phone. Could you search him <laughs> as his employer? I just, it was just too socially awkward for me. And so I said, great, this guy just stole my phone. That was my conclusion. And then finally I called Betty and I said, I can't find it. She said, I checked find my friends. It's somewhere here at the terminal. So I apologized to them and I ran back to the terminal and it was in my backpack. <laughs> I just didn't see it under all my stuff. <laughs> And I, you don't know how bad I felt <laughs> thinking that everything was airtight. I tried my watch. I tried calling. I tried everything. I searched. It wasn't there. And in my own limited set of facts, I thought I knew that this guy stole my phone. And the truth was I was woefully wrong. And I think that's what the story of Job is trying to tell us. We come to God with our airtight systems of logic and think we know how the world works. And we accuse God of his injustices. And I think one of the things that the book of Job is trying to say is, do you really think you know the mind of God? As Job would dare to say, I know what's concealed in your heart, God. I know what's in your mind and what you're doing to me. And what God would say later is, Job, you don't have the faintest clue what's in my mind. There needs to be a humility that allows the infiniteness of God to be God. And say, in my limited view, I don't understand what's going on. But God, let me give you the benefit of the doubt that you are a just and good God, even in the face of my suffering. It's interesting that God would provide a mediator years later, but the mediator that God provide would not come because we don't trust him, but because he is ultimately the only one that is truly trustworthy because the mediator that God would provide would be his own son, Jesus Christ, to lay down his own life to reconcile our broken relationship with God. 
God will surprise us over and over again against our expectations, but not in the direction that we think. But God says, test and see me if I am truly this faithful one who loves you more than you could ever understand. Let's pray. There are no easy answers in the face of suffering, are there? And especially what we're seeing happening right now in Israel and Gaza. Oh, my goodness. Just, it's so painful watching the news and seeing the footage of these dead children. And, and it's just horrific. And as we look at all this, it really tests our faith, doesn't it? God, are you really in control of your universe? None of this makes sense to me if you are. And I think as we put on our own philosopher's cap, we can come to our own conclusion about the goodness of God and say, God, you are actually a pretty wicked being because the world you made is just a horrible place. And what kind of a good God would do the things that he does in this world? And it takes real faith and humility to be able to say, maybe God's ways are higher than my ways. And maybe I don't understand things from his vantage point, but from my little perspective of an ant, I see so little and understand so little. And so in our suffering, we are invited to enter into that place of surrender, to trust in God's own words that he loves us more than we could ever imagine and that he is good. And the way that God proved that goodness is by giving us his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. Christ becomes the anchor to our faith that we can hold on to. As Paul says, if God would give us his one and only son, why would he not give you everything else for your good if he would give you that which is most precious to him, his only son? And so whenever you feel like your faith is wavering, look to the cross of Christ and know that there isn't anything that God wouldn't do out of his love for you. Would you just pray for just a minute or two and then I'm going to invite you to come to the table and take communion together as a church family. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.